Amen. And this is the word of God, right? And may God write the, his word on our hearts that we might not sin against him, as it says in Psalm 119. This morning, you need to know there are churches in our city uh, that will stand on the principles of their denomination's beliefs, and they will teach error concerning the Holy Spirit. I'll give you two examples. The Assemblies of God Statement of Fundamental Truths, number eight, titled The Initial Physical Evidence of the Baptism in the Holy Spirit, says this. It says, quote, the baptism of believers in the Holy Spirit is witnessed by the initial physical sign of speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives them utterance, end quote. One scripture citation is given in that statement of faith, Acts 2, verse 4. There are three local churches in Nacogdoches that are of this tradition in the formal sense. You can learn that online. Let me give you another example. The United Pentecostal Church International has an online belief page as well. Under what they say, the section called About the Gospel says this, quote, the saving gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. We obey the gospel by repentance, death to sin, water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, burial, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial sign of speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance, resurrection, end quote. This for them is the full gospel as they see it there in that one of the scriptures given, Acts 2 verse 4. Through your search engine, you can find five churches in Nacogdoches who hold this belief, at least formally. Now, I bring these up. These are two examples, denominationally, and eight churches. But we are really just scratching the surface if we were to truly survey churches near us this morning who find themselves at fundamental odds with interpreting scripture about the Holy Spirit. That is, they're fundamentally wrong concerning their teaching about the Holy Spirit in Acts 2. So we need to get this right. My point is not to pick a fight. My point is not to slam these churches. Churches who I truly hope will turn from any error that they may pursue in teaching about a second blessing of the Holy Spirit being salvific. That is, it saves. My point is not just to slam. Honestly, to call out error is a faithful practice of Christian obedience when it's done in love. And I tell you, I meet these people. I've talked to some of them face to face and with the utmost love have implored them to see reason. You can do the same. But it's not my point. Rather, my point is to show how quickly our passage today can become extremely controversial, that it can often be mistaught. Sometimes it can be quickly manipulated for the purpose of serving oneself. What is the Spirit of God really up to in Acts 2 that you just heard read? What, what is the Spirit of God up to? Can we know what God's Spirit is up to? Can we apply principles from this moment, this story of the Spirit of God falling on the new covenant people of God to our lives today? These are questions that need answers. Well, we will answer these questions today. Thankfully, we can see in the context of today's passage the work of God's Holy Spirit in this moment. We can see it. We can see it for what it is. God can show us. We can learn from the examples of these disciples. We can avoid error of those in the passage that we are exposed to that maybe fail to understand Pentecost's purpose. 
That's what this day was, Pentecost. And we can find it. This passage can be summarized in one sentence this morning. Having been baptized in the Spirit, the disciples are filled with the Spirit for the purpose of gospel proclamation. I'll say it again, just to give you right off the bat a good summary of the whole passage. Having been baptized in the Spirit, the disciples are filled with the Spirit for the purpose of gospel proclamation. Notice this sentence summary points directly to the Spirit's work. That's what our passage is all about today, how God's Spirit works. We're going to see four ways that the Spirit works this morning, okay? The Spirit's regenerating work is point one. We will see the Spirit's regenerating work. Secondly, we'll see the Spirit's filling, the Spirit's filling, how the Spirit fills our lives. Thirdly, we'll see the Spirit's purpose, regenerating us, filling us, and then the Spirit's purpose, and then we'll close with the Spirit's effect, what the Spirit does. So let's talk about the first thing, the Spirit's regenerating work. It's in verse 1. But first, what is the Spirit's regenerating work? That's a big word, regeneration or regenerating. Well, simply put, regeneration is it's a work of God, by the Holy Spirit, from which God causes a person to be, the Bible calls it, born again, to be born again. That is, given a new heart, the Bible will say, taking away an ugly heart of stone and giving one a heart of flesh. It's evidenced, regeneration, when you have repentance, turning from sin, and faith, faith to trust God, to believe, and to obey Christ. It is God placing a person in Christ. Now, question, is it in this passage? Let me answer you, no. <laughs> the regenerating work of the Spirit is not in this passage. Actually, the fruit of it is. But we have to start here. We have to start with the context. We have to start with the fact that what we actually see is not the Spirit's regenerating work. We see the fruit of God's regenerating work in these men. You see, these men... We're filled with the Holy Spirit in this text. They're not being saved by the Holy Spirit in this moment. That's very important to note. It is because they are saved at this moment that this moment is happening. And that is actually what verse 1 communicates beautifully and all, all by itself right there. Now, I worry that there's confusion. So before even seeing it, because I want to show you the text, but I want to maybe do some legwork. If I'm going to have an introduction like I had, I don't want to unnecessarily offend or hurt you. I want to show you that this is reason and a reasonable approach to approaching Scripture. You've heard baptized by fire before, I guarantee it. Okay, it's quoted from the Bible. It's our sermon title today. And the reason why I picked it is because it's quoting directly from Matthew in the Bible, Matthew 3.11, okay? You don't have to go there. I'll read it to you. But there, John the Baptist says this. And remember, John the Baptist came before Jesus as a messenger preparing people for Christ. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. He was. He was dunking people, and they were repenting of their sin. He says, but he who is to come after me, Jesus Christ, he is mightier than I am. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Uh, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I bring that up because as I talked about, there is a false teaching among charismatic churches today from this text, Matthew 
and also our text, as we've seen in, in Acts 2, of the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit as being the same as being baptized in the Spirit. But beloved, you need to understand the two differences here. That is baptized in the Holy Spirit versus being filled with the Holy Spirit. When we're talking about being baptized in the Spirit, we're in point one, the Spirit's work of regenerating, that is saving someone. Now, the issue of conflating the two is that in its worst forms, this heresy goes so far as to tell someone who needs to repent and trust the gospel that in order for them to really have assurance of that faith, they need to see a sign. It becomes gospel saves me plus what I feel plus talking and babble plus having this experience. And, it's, and, it, and it, it conflates the two in its worst forms to say, no tongues, no faith. That's dangerous. Not only is it dangerous, it's deadly. That's its worst forms. So this understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in salvation is wrong. And sadly, as I showed in the introduction, people apply it to Acts 2. Acts 2, 4 being a major point there where you see the fire and the Spirit and working in tongues through the apostles. Let's say this, it is to be rejected in extreme forms, like I've taught you today, but it is to be also considered extremely dangerous in its less severe presentations. Churches do not go so explicit as to say you have to do this to be saved, but even a practice that is suggesting such culture is dangerous. It's to be guarded against. Now, I told you this passage will simply and accurately correct itself if we let the context do it. I do want to show you the background of the context of verse 1. Verse 1, there you see, says the day of Pentecost arrived. And then it says they were all together in one place. Now, that they were all together in one place, those guys, <laughs> in John 20, before Jesus goes and dies for them, Jesus told them and he breathed on them symbolically and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And in John 20, 22, their faith was to be a faith that was to believe, believe that that Jesus right there in front of them was God. Their confession that he pointed them back to was, who do you say that I am? And they said, you are the Christ, the son of God, the living one. And he said, that's what I'm going to build faith on right there. When you read in verse one, they were gathered together in one place. You must see that what have they been doing in the whole first chapter? normal means of grace that normal Christians who were already born again have been doing. They've been reading their Bibles. They've been praying. They've been expecting God to do great things. And now they're submitting themselves to God fully, right? All that present among them. It shows us that these men were saved before this, and now at this moment that they're speaking in tongues is, is now them seeing of fruit in their lives. But it is not to be disconnected from all the fruit they've already seen, where Jesus beat the grave and they were transformed when they believed in his resurrection from the doubters who were standing on the mountain with him to now the bold witness that can stand. You have to see the connection of more fruit, not isolate and say, I need this. I must pursue this gift. That, that's not what the text is saying. It's assuming that you believe for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, Galatians 3.27. In other words, Christ is the one who told them, do you see my hands? They're, they are symbolic of the Father's hands and I have put you in them. And trust me, no one can pluck you from the Father's hands and no one will pluck you from mine. What's he telling them in that? He's saying, you're secured in me, you're born again. 
Nicodemus in John 3, right, is instructed, uh, look, Nicodemus, you don't understand the wind. You can't control the wind. But I tell you, I put the wind where it is. So if you want to believe, follow me, right? Nicodemus struggles, but later comes, comes back, we see. What's happening? It's not you know, fire from heaven. It's actually trust, and it's demonstrable. It can be seen here, and it is. Another aspect in the regenerating work of the Spirit. Look at the timing. When the day of Pentecost arrived, you see that at the beginning. I got to tell you, the first thing uh, to point out before defining what Pentecost is, is that for these Jews, they were gathered um, at this point, and it was all by God's divine timing that all these things have happened. When you read that, if you'll pause and study it, um, it's amazing to see that God wastes no days. He wastes nothing. He wastes, he wastes no festival. And in this moment, we realize that God is, is, is doing something even in the timing of this moment. Even in the timing. His regenerating work can be known, and it's shown in the timing. Here's the facts. And they just so happen to be the gospel, so pay attention, okay? It's Pentecost. This is a Jewish holiday that was celebrated for over a 1,000 years for them as a people, longer. I mean, they have been celebrating this. And the way you feel about Christmas and being normal and always coming and enjoying it, that's the way they felt about these festivals. However, their parties were appointed by God. God is the one who has commanded them to do this, not Macy's, you know, telling them to buy stuff. This is God saying like, hey, you celebrate what I tell you to celebrate. And they do that. And they've done it on a pattern. Now, Pentecost gets its root word. It, 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 it was celebrated the month of Sivan on the Jewish calendar. That's around May or June. And it's celebrated 50 days after Passover. 50 days when it comes to an end, marks at that, around that time, May, June, to bring in all the grain. It's a harvest festival. So they were agrarian. They, had, you know, they needed food. They had to grow themselves. And so a celebration for God's people to show God provides for us. And he brings in all this wheat, and, you know, and they bring it all in. And on the 50th day, they have this, they have this celebration feast called pa uh, Pentecost. All right? That's the day in the text. But listen to me. Here's why God wastes no, nothing and why his work can be known in regeneration. If you back up, they celebrate that 50th day after the day of Passover. So 50 days after another celebration called Passover, they celebrate Pentecost. Well, you know what we know from reading our Bibles? Jesus was crucified on the Passover week. Not only that, Jesus was crucified on a day called Preparation Day on Friday from 12 noon to 6 o'clock. Jesus hung on a cross. They had to pull him down because the next day was a holy Sabbath where they would take a Sabbath. And then the next day after that on Sunday was the beginning of the count of 50 days. Now, I want you to think because this is the gospel. Jesus crucified as a Passover lamb. The Passover is a holiday that they're celebrating because they remember they remember that in Egypt, when they were slaves, it was God who delivered them. And the way he did it was they killed a lamb and they put the blood over the doorpost of that house. And when God passed by to wipe out and judge the Egyptians, if that blood was there, they were protected. And God used a sacrificial lamb to bring them out of their bondage and sin. And then Jesus shows up on that celebration day on Friday and we kill him. You kill him. They're going to learn in Acts 2. You crucified him. And what happens? God testifies from all of time. In this moment, Passover was made. 
That is, you can be hidden in this dead lamb on the cross and God will pass over your sin. Friday, laid him in a grave. Saturday comes. Jews are scrambling because it's preparation or it's Sabbath now. So Friday night, get him off the cross, put him in the grave because next day is we got to put our best clothes on. They, they observe the Sabbath. Meanwhile, Jesus in the grave is then made ready by God on Sunday to be risen from the grave. Now, check this out. I'm not, you cannot make this stuff up. According to Leviticus 23, you can write that down, study it later. On this day, this, this day one, okay, it would, be the, this, it would be the Sunday after that Sabbath of Passover, okay? On that Sunday, for years, they would practice taking the first fruits. Remember, it's a harvest coming in 50 days. Well, the thing about vegetables is they don't just all of a sudden in one day on the 50th day grow, right? Some of them grow a little bit earlier. And so they would take those first, first pickings on that Sunday and they would wave an offering before God with those first ones and they called it the first fruits on that first day of the 50. Our God allowed his own son to be crucified as a Passover lamb. And then if there's anything to wave before God, to appease him, to, to remind us that everything we have is from him and is enough, it would be God getting his own son out of the grave and raising him up as a first fruit. And he did. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Listen to the language. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first one. Jesus was raised in relation to the moment. And so after 50 days now, departed, gone to the Father, when God is going to send the Holy Spirit, when's he going to do it? He's going to do it on the day where they celebrate bringing in as much wheat as they can and remembering it from God. Friend, to come in the next passage next week, we will see 3,000 people repent of their sins as first fruits themselves and say, I identify with that Jesus. The Jesus who was raised up and the Jesus who then will bring in a multitude and they'll repent and they'll be baptized. What do we call that? The regenerating work of the Spirit. Now, I'm showing you a big scale and a personal scale on these people, but here is my main point. You can say all of this from studying verse one? Yeah. <laughs> do you see it? Do you see the thrust of the text? The idea is you can't just read Acts 2.1 and just start looking for weird signs about the Spirit in your life. That's hopeless. You want real hope? Realize that God has patiently endured evil. He has, in forms and feasts for years, set forth a witness. He has fulfilled it in his son Christ. And to look to Jesus is enough. It's enough for salvation. It's enough for you to be picked up out of the dirty mess that your life is and realize God never wastes a season, he never wastes a trial, and he never wastes your own sin. If anything, he works all that you see as a problem for your good in Christ and for his glory. Amen. Point one is God is much less interested in what you think about your own glory or ability to fill the spirit. He's way much less, less interested in what you think. He's way more interested in what he has done and what he has said. And his glory that the angels look at, literally angels peer into the gospel and they say, what? You'll stoop so low, God, to rescue this people? Angels look with curiosity to see our inclusion into this glorious story where God says, I love you, you're my son, you're my daughter, and I'm gonna use you. I mean, I, I'm way too far into point one, but I, I gotta, I'm sorry, I just... We can't see the Spirit's filling and the things God does until we realize it's apart from us. Here's my closing thoughts. God picks sense out of nonsense. 
Like this passage is not about nonsense. God picks sense out of it. And you got to study and feel it to know he's been making sense from the beginning. God, God uh, picks life out of the grave. That's the spirit's main work. You're dead. And God makes you alive in him. Uh, God picks meaning out of the monotony. I hope you believe that. He picks meaning out of the boring, monotony, difficulty of your life. He picks meaning out of it. There's nothing boring about studying these things in the Old Testament if you're with Christ, because you see it, right? So every time we need to realize that it's divine, it's purposeful. I spent way too much time on that point, but I don't care, all right? Because I want you to know, brother and sister and friend here today, that, uh, that God... God's spirit is, it's filling, yeah. And honestly, it's fireworks. I mean, it's explosive, and we're about to see that. But I think that what gets undersold is just how absolutely critical it is to believe that if you're in Christ, you have enough. And if you'll just rest there, like that soul, like that song saying, dear refuge of my weary soul. You could put a period on the title of that song. If you know Christ, you know that. And everything else can just fade, right? Tell me that story of Jesus, sweetest thing I've ever heard. Tell me the story most precious. Let me hear it all the time. A blind woman wrote that, right? Because she knew, like, it's not what I see, it's what I know that God has revealed. That's the Spirit's regenerating work. It spills over, though. And that's what this whole rest of the text is about. Two, three, four is the second point, the Spirit's filling. Um, first, the Spirit filled the room. You notice that in verse 2? First, the Spirit fills the room they're in. And I want you to know the language is clear. And all translations really stick to this idea that there's this roaring sound that happens. And it makes the point um, when it fills the room here, the way it sounded was, was it sounded like roaring wind. But I want you to see it sounded like it. So think about it like this. In East Texas, you know, we, we understand this concept. We've had some windy days recently. I hope you went outside in them and didn't get blown away. But if you do that, you can find there's times where you stand outside for like five minutes and you don't feel anything. But because of the pines, you hear the roar of the wind. You know what I'm talking about? Imagine that. Okay, if you want to understand this text, imagine all of a sudden there's that roar and everyone in the city of Nacogdoches realizes it. And somehow that roar is centralizing our attention to downtown. And so we all start moving toward downtown because it seems like that's the source of this heavenly noise. God does that. So this, it is a sound, God calling people. And so God uses it, he draws. And then you get verses three through four, fire. So we got wind, all right, noise here, and now we have fire. And on the surface, these verses seem crazy because, let's be honest, one thing is clear. This is a physical sign accompanying the manifestation of God's Holy Spirit. There is no denying that. Physically, things are changing in this scene, and they're spectacular. But if you're a student of the Bible, you'll realize that this is not as sensational as some think. Sure, it was a crazy moment physically, but do you know, thematically, this is completely in line with God's spirit prior to this moment in scripture. God's spirit isn't like throwing a temper tantrum or acting up or displaying something new in its character. It's not something new or some secret knowledge or special thing. It's actually even more fulfillment. You know, in the Old Testament, when God appeared or his presence appeared, it was fire and smoke. It was wind and chaos. God hides a man in the cleft of a rock, and God shows a, an earthquake and a fire and a wind and then a still small voice. 
He's present in that last one, right? But he shows up in a whirlwind to Job, doesn't he? And he says, Job, consider me, right? And his power. Let me give you some examples, some more. We learn in everyone's focus in the Old Testament, there's this amazing story where the prophets of Baal are worshiping falsely and, and Elijah is God's prophet there and the focus needs to be on the sacrifice. And so what happens is the, the fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice of Elijah and not the other prophets, the false gods. And we all know, oh, we're observing God's work when we see the fire fall centralized. I'll give you another example. There's this Old Testament story in Mount Sinai and there is Israel and they're receiving God's law. And on that day, God descends on the top of the mountain. Guess what in? Fire and smoke, cloud and wind, terror. So much so that that central focus, oh, that's where the fire is. That's God's presence. God's people say, and they spent three days trying to get right, like to get ready for this. But then when the day came and they see that, they're like, we got to back up. <laughs> do not let us get close. Moses, you go up. We don't want nothing to do with that. We're scared. But it's a good fear. It's a holy fear. But nonetheless, the fire said, look here. Imagine Moses standing on the mountain, the burning bush, so holy that it's God's presence. And it's not on Moses, right? His attention's on the bush. He's not filled with the fire. The fire's on the bush. And he's aware of God's presence. Maybe finally, Anytime God's temple was filled, there's numerous accounts. But imagine the 12 tribes of Israel multiplied now to hundreds of thousands of people. And in the center of their camp lies their, their temple. And when God decides to manifest himself in the Holy of Holies, a temple of fire and wind and cloud descends. And everyone looks to the center of it and says, our God is there. Moses can't even enter it. Why? Because God's presence is made known. It happens often in the Old Testament. What's happening? Well, in our text, these, I'm telling you, it's, in, it's entirely the same, yet it's entirely different. Okay, God's presence, like a roaring wind, verse 2, is physically manifested. And this time, notice the fire is not central. The fire is on them. <laughs> Tongues of fire appear, and it divides, and it's on the twelve. God had appointed these 12 to be representative of his 12 tribes, right? All his people who would be included in him. And now the fire is not something to be observed. When you're regenerate and born again, that fire is in you. That's what's happening. And so they receive this, sure. And this physical accompaniment happens. So we got fire and wind. So clearly God's presence is here. But why? And why tongues? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, look... The Bible uses the word for tongue just like me and you think of tongues, okay? It, it does use it in that way. That is the, the organ that's in your mouth right now that I'm using, okay? That, that's your tongue. But deeper still, the Bible does what you and I can logically do. A tongue is much more than just something in your mouth, right? A tongue can become your culture. You can speak a certain way. You can do stuff with your tongue. You use language. You eat with it. You know, the tongue is kind of like a life-giving organ in a lot of ways. You can't live without it. Well, the idea of this text is language, okay? When it's used here, it's using language. Again, why this is so important biblically, we see directly connected to language and with this filling of the Spirit comes another thing that God was doing. Not only was he putting the Spirit in each of them, but as he was doing this, we see that they speak and, they, and, and God does something with language. Now, again, in the Old Testament, in Genesis 11, the word tongue is used there as well, and it's in a different story. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, remember, I said Genesis 11. 
So that's just, you know, about six chapters or seven chapters after the fall. I can't do math very well, but you understand. Genesis 3 to 11. And so God, in eight chapters, has began unpacking what does it mean when man falls into sin? Well, you know what happens? Mankind spoke one language at that time in Genesis 11. And with their unity, with their unity, they decide to get together and they build this tower. In other words, they had lost the garden, God's perfect presence, where they had a tree in the middle of it. And now they're trying to, in their unity, build their own garden. And they're working to build it. And they say, let's build our own tree. Let's build a big tower that will reach up to God. And God will, you know, he will see it, you know, we'll be greater than God. And Genesis 11 says, God looks down on them. He comes down to see what they were doing. And he realized, and they're unified in their rebellion. And what does God do? He curses them. And the curse is they can't talk to each other anymore. In other words, he splits their tongues into different languages. They speak different languages. And I don't know if you've ever been overseas or you talked to somebody who's international or ordered at a restaurant maybe where they don't speak good English. It's hard. Nothing's more frustrating than trying to get something done with someone that y'all can't speak the same language. It's very difficult. God curse is God judges their pride, humbling them by cursing them with different tongues, different languages. They can't understand each other. All they can understand now is how frustrated they are because of their sin. So they scatter around the world. All the way to the ends of the earth, they scatter. And so me and you, we speak the way we speak because those descendants early on, now culture gets birthed. All these different trains of thought appear and all over the world, everyone's different. But you know, we have one thing in common. We hate each other. <laughs> And so we war and we fight and we devour, right? And what, is, what does the Holy Spirit do? He takes spirit-filled people. He puts God's fire and wind. He puts it inside them. And then he shows, this is how I'll unify. And what does God do? He reverses the curse of Genesis 11. Now, these men will speak. And as they speak, that diversity of God can be, can be seen. It gets broken down. If there was a barrier between people hearing the gospel, it's gone now. It's gone. Why? Because God gives them the gift of language. When filled with the Spirit, the apostles become the means of God reversing the curse of Babel. The word tongue is also used in Revelation 5.9. There it says that on the day when we're all in heaven, every tribe, nation, and tongue will be represented. It doesn't mean that all will be saved. It's not a universalist text saying everybody's saved or all roads lead to heaven. It's not saying that. It's saying that the one way, Jesus Christ, and the truth and the life, all who are in him, yeah, God's plucking them from every single, that wheat he's bringing in, he's doing it from every tongue. And so we, the, 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 the belief is, is that God is doing it. Now, listen, in addition to that, though not all persons will ultimately be saved, it is the case that one day every tongue will confess that's Philippians 2.11. So if you're wearied in evangelism right now, an application of the spirit-filled nature of this that we're going to see in the last point is don't get weary when people don't believe because, listen, God gives comfort to the fact that if they don't believe now, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Let that motivate you not to believe that God's some, this harsh judge and think wrongly of him. Think of your own calling. Think of the fact that God stands behind you when you say to someone, repent of your sin. Stop loving sin and love Jesus. Follow him. Have authority because what does God say? God, God says, look, I curse languages in Genesis 11. I am reversing it in my son. Flee to him for refuge. All who find him ce celebrate with revelation. But know this, Philippians 2.11, one day every tongue will confess.
I don't know what they say now, but they will say it then. They will say that Jesus is Lord. So if the gospel will go, as Jesus said, to Jerusalem, right now, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, that was Acts 1.8, how's it going to overcome all those language and cultural barriers? We have our answer here, don't we? We have our answer. God is answering and showing. Summarize this point for you. The one who cursed God became a curse so that those who deserved the curse would go overcome the curse through and for him and his glory, right? That's what spirit-filled people do. So spirit's work regenerates. The spirit's work, it gives a purpose. Or excuse me, uh, sorry, it fills. And then now, third point, the spirit's purpose. The spirit's purpose. Now, the purpose is important to distinguish, I think, because uh, in the text, it's twofold, okay? So let's see it by showing the universal purpose and then the personal purpose, okay? So the Spirit's purpose, so like why this is happening, okay? Regenerate people being filled with the Spirit. Why? Well, the first purpose we see, it was universal. So look at verses 5 and 6. It says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, underline this, from every nation under heaven. It's important. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now I want you to look, because then we see, if you'll skip down, we see in 9 through 11, there's a list that you heard Aaron read really well of all of these people. That all the places that they come from, okay? It should get you excited because what's happening is this is the, a list of really the known world, all right? The Mediterranean Sea, if you plotted all these nations, they're all around it, and it's the known world at that time. And we see that every nation under heaven is here. So the Spirit's purpose is to glorify Christ as Savior of the world, now, how do you accomplish such a universal task? You know what you do? You bring the whole world to one place. <laughs> That's what God does in this text. I mean, y'all, do y'all realize that this is more than likely families that are from these places as well? Families that had kids and wives and people, and they had to, they had to load up, and they had to cart themselves all the way through all the difficulties it takes to go on any trip, and God gave them the strength to do it. They're all there. They're all there. The historical studies are rich, and each example of this massive list of nations here would blow your mind. If you could see and study all of the seeds of righteousness that God has sown, I mean, when, when he says one place, you can, you can study it and you can see, whoa, prior to this moment, there are leftover Jews that are there that God scattered through means of like evil doers in the Old Testament, and somehow he preserved a witness there so that when they come here and they, they get saved... And then they go there to go back to where they're at. God's already raising up a witness for his church. And he's done, you can do that for each nation here. Now, I don't have time, but I'm inviting you. You want to study the Bible? You want to get Acts 2 for what it is? Stop seeing fire and wind all the time and realize that the fire and wind, it drew for one purpose. Universal salvation. That is, not that everyone is saved, but that everywhere will know that there is a way to be saved and they'll repent and they'll trust Jesus. I mean, it's likely that, that you know, these 3,000 people that are going to be saved 
Um, they had no idea what they were coming for in one sense, but in another way, they absolutely knew. They were absolutely ready to be saved because God had been working. I mean, a huge application for this is like, read yourself into this list. That's totally appropriate. If you want faith in Christ, you want to believe, realize what has God done for you that's so unique that you didn't even see prior to led to your salvation. I promise it's meeting someone. It's hearing some teacher. It's listening to some sermon. It's in passing, realizing you know, that somebody was praying for you. I mean, it, it's all these little moments. And here's God demonstrating, hey, I have a purpose. The Spirit's universal purpose shows the scope and the power of God's plan. Just take one of our guests from Rome. They would have traveled over 2,500 miles to Jerusalem. Today, they would have to get in a car and drive 43 hours. Back then, they traveled months, but God knew. It shows us, this, uh, th- this purpose shows us God immediately fulfilling his promise to the nations, that they will be reached, that every nation and every tribe will know him. Now, what's amazing is that something that, that, that these men will labor to see is, is that when they go, they're gonna ha- we're going to see growth in every one of these cities that are here. Paul's going to show up in, right there among Phrygia, right? And he's going to be among them, and he's going to plant a church. When he's, when he's north or, or, when, or when he's in Crete on an island and gets like, you know, there as, uh, on his journey, he's going to preach the gospel, and people are going to be saved. But God is already putting along the whole path to come people that want to know him. It shows us that God can reach the Gentile. He can reach the pagan. Notice it says proselytes in verse 11, I believe. These are God-fearers. These are people that are not Jewish, but they're, they began to follow the way. Some of them, I mean, if you were a Jewish man who was going to fully convert and you weren't a Jew, you were coming into it, you'd have to circumcise yourself in adulthood. I mean, there were a lot of things that were really difficult, but they were, despite the difficulties, interested. And they show up here and they receive the circumcision of the heart. They're saved. It shows that God shows no partiality. It shows that God... That God will truly save all who are in Christ. It doesn't matter if they're from North Africa. It doesn't matter if they're from Rome and they think they're, they're pretentious and think they're better than everyone. That was Rome. It doesn't matter if they're from over here in Asia Minor. God says, whatever culture, bring them all to me, I'll save them. And he does because he can transcend culture. It shows that our God is not partial. There are many applications for the universal idea, but listen to me. The second half of this is the Spirit's purpose was personal. So it wasn't just that we see this large-scale thing. Look at verses 6, 8, and 11. Notice in verses 6, 8, and 11, it all shows the same thing on purpose. Luke is showing that it is in their own language that the Spirit is speaking through the disciples, okay? The Spirit's purpose is to call, call these men together. It has a personal application. Guys, this is a specific people. So we will actually learn the names of some of them. Some of them will be appointed as seven men, early church leaders we're going to see. Guys like Stephen and Nicholas, guys who were there, and they receive this. They become actual people. And uh, verse 11, we see, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What was the Spirit's purpose? It was for them to hear the mighty works of God. Now, look, this is really easy. I mean, the, the whole idea is language and dialect. So if anybody looks at this and says they were speaking in some heavenly language, they were saying, you know, baba shababa, baba, daba, ding dong, or whatever. 
That's just nuts to apply that to this. There's no way that that's what's happening when the Spirit came upon these people. No, its purpose was actually the exact opposite of nonsense. It was perfect sense. That's why they make the note of they're all confused. These are Galileans. You know why? Because Galileans had this guttural issue where they couldn't talk like normal, like Jewish words that they were supposed to say. They, they couldn't do the huh sound that a lot of the words are. And their dialect told on them. That's why when Peter decides to deny Jesus, a little girl hears him and says, hold up, are, you sound like them. Are you a Galilean? Aren't you one of his followers? Jesus from Galilee? Because he was. See, God gives them perfect clarity. They have no accent. And without the knowledge prior to it, they can speak the perfect language of Medes. They can speak Alexandrian, Egyptian, Phoenician type language. They can say it perfectly. How? Purpose of the Spirit. God purposed in this text for them to speak and to proclaim his excellencies. Notice, he's not even preaching the gospel yet. That's next week. Right now, it's just, come and behold our God. Now, remember, this is a Jewish festival. They would have normally heard a bunch of those different languages coming from different parts of Jerusalem where they would shout, you know, shout out the Shema. Hero, Lord, Israel, you know, hero, hero, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would have heard that normally at this festival. They would have heard it in this language, in Greek and, and whatever. But now they're hearing one message in all of their languages. It's different. You see? They're being unified. It's personal. So we need to recap. The Spirit's regenerating power is known by the fruit of these men. The Spirit's filling is shown in this biblical pattern, right? Fire, wind, and then tongues. God's reversing a lot. He's showing my spirit causes action. And then it has a purpose. The nations and then a personal application. So let's finish then. The last point to see, the spirit's effect. Verse 12 and 13 says, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. The Bible is never ambiguous or confusing. I love its clarity. The moment you think it's a contradiction, study some more, it will be clear. But the Bible is so clear, start to end, that we all face two ways to live. And this crowd faced the same, same decision that you and I face today. Okay? And in this text, we already begin to see the effect that the Holy Spirit is going to have on some of them. Their, reaction are not, their reactions are not controlled by the apostles. Hear me out. You cannot control the Holy Spirit. No matter what you think, you cannot control the Holy Spirit. And that's a good thing for you. The Holy Spirit has to make happen what happens. That's regeneration. We've covered that. But I'm pointing that out here because what happens here in the responses is all because of what's been presented. It's all because of the truth that's out there, and now we get to see some reactions, and the Spirit is clearly up to something. Notice that all present have some reaction. The truth is, when you hear the truth, from when God shows you the truth, everyone's going to have a reaction. Even if their reaction is, no reaction, I don't believe any of this, and I'm walking away, that's a reaction. So this first, this first gets into our heads, and we see it. They're all amazed and, and perplexed. So first, there's this group there that is amazed and perplexed. They look on the situation. But notice, they're the ones asking, what does this mean? 
You see, the, the Spirit's purpose reveals, has an effect on them, and it gives them an honest curiosity. It leads them to want to know more. They're beginning to have ears that hear. They're beginning to have a heart that is softening and changing because God's word has shown up, okay? Those with such interest, we will see, they're going to encounter the irresistible grace of God. It's a scandalous message. A man's going to stand up next week and he's going to say, you crucified God, but he loves you and he forgives you still. Scandalous. And they're going to find right now hope. They're beginning to listen. But in there, Luke's going to say they're cut to their heart. In other words, God will do it. But right now, he's just priming them. He's getting them ready, right? God's wooing them. He's, he's showing, look, you love this sin. You love northern Alexandrian Egyptian culture. You love it. But I'm going to just put right in front of you something altogether better and more beautiful. Will you come and listen? And they're asking the questions. They're like, what? What does this mean? What are you talking about? I want to hear about this again. Will you tell me again? And their heart's being changed. And there's the second group. Heartbreakingly so, the second group defaults to mockery. Right? It is easier to make fun of something than for that thing to convict and bother you. Humor is just a simple exit for not dealing with more serious issues. Dismissing something can somehow make it less clear in your own head. And so that's what they do. The second group, their failure to hear anything besides what they normally would hear at this type of event. I mean, normally they just hear a bunch of different voices and noise. I mean, they hear their own language spoken, but they don't really care much about the other ones, right? They need, they need their culture. Like, they need what they have to be enough for them. And the rest of that stuff, yeah, whatever. We, yeah, we all agree on God, but like, I'm going to do me and do my truth. That's them. And so instead of really pressing in and asking the question, what do I do with this? This is, this is a glorious invitation. What do I do with it? Because of the conviction that it would mean, we see them mock. They're filled with new wine. These guys must be drunk. They cite tomfoolery to dismiss what should be conviction of sin. What do you make of two polar opposite responses to such a physical movement of the spirit? What do you make of it? Well, you make what the disciples understood. Remember, regenerate people have heard Mark 4. Jesus told them when he was alone and those around him were with the 12 and the 12 came and they were asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, why do you keep talking in parables? Like, why are you teaching stories? This is what Jesus answered and said. He said, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything's in parables. Everything's confusing. So that, and then he quotes the Old Testament, they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That's clear. You know why somebody won't repent and believe the gospel when they love their sin more than Jesus? That's why. That's why, because they love their sin more than Jesus. It's not complicated. This second group that wants to hurl mockery from the crowd, that's because they're interested right now in something else, their own choice that God honors is for them to walk away from this moment with a desire to love cre created more than creator. Now, we hope that this group doesn't remain like this. And newsflash, they won't. Some of them were called Pharisees. They're going to rise up and they're going to beat these men for what they're doing. They're going to try to kill them and they'll successfully throw one of them off the top of a temple, as an example. But before that, God will even save some of them. 
But for now, though, we see Jesus' instructions. He says in Matthew eleven fifteen, 15, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, John 6 shows us the work of God that baptism in the Holy Spirit does so clearly. You know, in that passage, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says that just as he was risen, those who hear will be raised. So conclusion, the Spirit's effect when at work is always to invite men to consider these two ways to live. And I want to show you this extemporaneous, really glorious, crazy chapter two introduction. You know what it's all for? It's literally the intro before the intro. It was all that God was doing before he appointed someone to stand up and preach a sermon. That's literally the whole point of Acts 2. You remember that sentence that I gave you as a one sentence for the, for, the, for the sermon? This passage, those having been baptized in the Spirit, the disciples are filled with the Spirit for the purpose of gospel proclamation. Is it wild and out? Yeah. Do we get like all up in the Old Testament and see this chapter for what it is? Absolutely. You know what its main purpose was? Gospel proclamation. So that someone can stand up and do what we do every week in here, what we do at our houses, what we do as we go on campus, what we do as we go out. We tell people, will you just come and listen? Here's Jesus. Repent. Trust him. Believe. He's enough. He's enough for you. And that's what these men get to do. And we'll see that next week. The Spirit's effects are explicit then. Right now, they're implicit, but there's still an invitation. Ask yourself, do you have ears to hear? If you do, then surrender everything to Jesus today. We're going to sing a song called, I Surrender All. It's not complicated, but it is something that can only be sang by believers. Those who are believers in Christ, who have trusted him, they say, I surrender all to you, Jesus, the one who was cursed for me. After that, we're going to confess our sin. I invite you today, confess your sin honestly before God. Join in that prayer. Because those who confess their sin believe that God is faithful and just to forgive them of their sins and cleanse them. And then after that, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. But hear me, only those who have been baptized in the spirit that is regenerated, God has picked you up and put you in Christ. Only they come to this table with faith. The rest come with dead works. But if you come and you come truly, God welcomes you there. And he points you to his healing wounds and his broken body and his spilt blood for you. And you have peace. You have peace to do his mission, right? After that, we'll be dismissed. But first, let's pray, and then we'll sing. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray you'll use the words that I've uttered, God, and you'd give sense to them, God. Pick the sense out of the nonsense. Uh, be as clear as that fire and wind was, that, that, that awesome day of Pentecost. Father, unpack for us again and even more what it means to be known by you and to believe. Father, if any weary soul is here today and they don't believe, God, grant them faith and repentance. Do in them a work that even if they, Lord, tried to convince us with something we, we wouldn't be able to know, but that they know. God, I pray that you'll just reach beyond anything we could imagine, but God, then show us how we can imagine it because you've said it and it's true. God, give us such clarity. God, uh, make us people of conviction. Help us to be missional as these men will be. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.